Proverbs 2, 1 through 8, and then 20 through 22. My child, if you accept my words and treasure up my commandments within you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, if you indeed cry out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk blamelessly, guarding the paths of justice and preserving the way of his faithful ones. Therefore, walk in the way of the good and keep to the paths of the just. For the upright will abide in the land and the innocent will remain in it. But the wicked will be cut off from the land and the treacherous will be rooted out of it. Please pray with me for our sermon today. (sighs) Almighty Father, I pray that you would fill me with your spirit to give me words of truth and goodness that we need to hear. I pray that you would open our hearts, open our minds, open our ears to hear from you what we need to hear from you this day. I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. So I think this is going to be the final sermon in the sermon series we've been doing on creation. I preach it with fear and trepidation because this is the sermon that you've either really been waiting for or really been dreading. Because I started, as I think we have to start, and I say this every week, I started with God loves creation more than we ever realize. And we looked at all these passages and it sort of overwhelmed me. God says, this is good. God says, everything is very good. God makes a covenant with the earth and with animals. And then we went on the next week and we talked about how God wants to redeem all things, not just people. And that's hard and that's new and that's challenging. But if you look at Romans 8 and you look at Colossians 1 and you looked at all the passages we looked at, it seems pretty clear. So we laid a foundation and that was good. Maybe even very good. I'm not sure. And then last week got a little harder, right? Because then we dealt with that hard passage in Genesis where it says God commands humans to have dominion over the animals and subdue the earth. And we said, that sounds really harsh and really hard. And does that undermine everything we've been saying the last few weeks? And I said, no, it doesn't. We talked a bit about that. How dominion and subduing means fulfilling the role of being God's image in the world of being a mediator of God's love in the world, of helping all of creation be fruitful and multiply because that's what God wants it to do. And that's what it means for responsibly us to rule. So here's the part I've been fearing and dreading. What, how then shall we live? Because people ask a lot of questions, rightly so. And people say, what does the Bible teach about whether we should buy organic food, whether we should eat vegetarian, whether we should compost, what temperature our thermostat should be set at, what political initiatives we should support and what we should oppose, what exactly should we do about climate change, factory farming, mountaintop removal, and literally dozens of other problems that exist within the world that we live in that afflict creation and causes creation to cry out and groan. What does the Bible teach about those things? What should we say today about that? Well, I chose this passage very carefully because the Bible doesn't say a lot directly, directly 
about our questions in this regard. I don't even know if it says anything directly about some of the issues I just raised. But it says a lot indirectly. It's kind of like this. This may be an easier analogy to see. What does the Bible say about how many hours a week my kids should spend on their iPad? Doesn't say anything as far as I can tell. So what do we do? How do I think about that in being faithful, in loving Jesus more, following him more? Well, what we're going to do today is we're going to reason with the Bible. We're not going to find a command, but we're going to reason with God's word and God's vision for life. Our passage lets us know how this works. And to go back to what Joanna said a moment ago, this is a we thing. I'll tell you in a minute what form it's going to take for us during Lent, but this is a we thing. Our passage says this to us. You have questions? You don't know how to live? Make your ear attentive. Incline your hearts, cry out for, seek, search for God's wisdom and God's ways. That's a lot of strong, aggressive, robust, active verbs. You got to seek. You got to seek aggressively. You got to want God's knowledge and you can't stop until God gives it to you. That's Proverbs. If you do this, interesting, it says you will abide in the land. That's an appropriate image for what we've been talking about. If you don't, you will be rooted out of the land. So our task is to seek, search, desire, open our ears, open our hearts. Now, I'm going to give you a sneak peek. What that looks like for us today is not a to-do list. I'm not going to tell you all of the habits you should embrace or change because I don't know. That's one reason. Another reason is I don't think that's the sort of thing that a sermon is. And I don't know that's the sort of way that we should approach things. Because I think preaching is pastoral. If I were to stand up here from the pulpit and give you a list of things to do, that wouldn't take into account your life. Any more than if you asked me a question, you came into my office and I pulled out a sheet ahead of time and said, these are the seven things you need to hear. That's just not pastoral. So we are going to wrestle in a deep way, and then we're going to leave it to the Holy Spirit for you to figure out with God and with each other what it might mean to live faithfully and well, loving God's creation. So what we're going to do is we're going to, during our Sunday evening times together, during Lent, we're going to meet here. We're going to continue to pray as we've been praying for our church. We're going to eat a modest meal together of soup and bread. Tonight, that's going to be prepared by Masa. I don't know if he knows that. Hi, Masa. And uh, we're going to talk, and we're going to reason, and we're going to wrestle together. And we're going to respect that some people are stronger and weaker in different areas, like Paul says. And we're going to have hope and faith for a better trajectory for all of us and we're going to help each other through accountability, imagination, and encouragement to take small steps to live more faithfully in this world. That's what we're going to do. But here's how we're going to do it. Okay, here's the first thing I want to say. Proverbs, a different passage in Proverbs says this. Now listen carefully. This is kind of weird, but this is really, really important. Proverbs 6, 27 through 28 says this. Can fire be carried in the bosom without burning one's clothes? 
Can one walk on hot coals without scorching the feet? Why in the world would I cite that to talk about creation? I've talked to you before about what has been called the act-consequence model in Scripture. And it's all over the place in the wisdom books, like Proverbs. It's in Job. It's all over the place in the prophets, in Deuteronomy. It's even in the New Testament. The idea of the act-consequence model, which you see clearly exemplified here, is if you do something, things will follow. If you touch a hot stove, you will burn your hand. That's a paraphrase of Proverbs 6. If you carry fire in your hands next to your chest, you will get burned. If you take a certain action, you will expect to experience the fruit, the consequences of that action. It's a profound principle in the Bible. Here is our problem when we talk about living in this creation and living well, is in our world, that is not really true in this area. Now, certainly, certainly, I'm not saying that that proverb should be thrown out of the Bible. It does apply in a lot of cases, and you teach your children that. If you touch a stove, you will feel the heat that will burn your hand. I teach my kids the act-consequence model every day. But when it comes to how we live In the world, in terms of our impact on this beautiful place that God has created, we just don't see the consequences. That makes all the difference for us. We are in a different world than the people who wrote the Bible were in. Ellen Davis, who I never got to take a class from when I was in seminary, she's a wonderful Old Testament teacher. She says this. I think I put this on your handout. An urban world completely uninvolved in and ignorant of agriculture is a quite new phenomenon. Before World War II in the 1930s, approximately 24% of the American population was employed in agriculture. Today, that number is less than 1.5%. What that means is we have a hard time thinking through some of the issues we're trying to think through. I had a hard time as a Bible teacher because Jesus, he's always using these images from the natural world that I just can't quite relate to. In my Greek class, we used to translate different passages from the Bible, and one day we came across This word, and I didn't know it in Greek, and I looked it up and I realized, to my horror, I didn't know the English either. I think it was glen. What's a glen? Is it like a valley or a hill or something? I didn't know. And this happened all the time. That is who we are, many of us, much of the time. The story in Genesis of Jacob taking fresh rods of poplar and almond, peeling them to make white streaks, putting them in front of the troughs of the flocks. And then the flocks, when they breathe, they come out striped. And I want to say, is that real? Does that work? Do farmers do that? Does that happen that way? Do you know? We just don't know so much because of the lives we lead. It's just a critical fact to acknowledge. I mention this book all the time because I love it. It was one of Brian's recommendations to me when I said, what are the best books to read as a pastor? It's called The Luminous Dusk 
by a man named Dale Allison. And he makes this point that is just so, I don't know, convicting to me. He says, we don't see animal deaths anymore. Most of us don't see animal deaths. And if we're honest, most of us don't see animals. Well, yes, we do. He makes this interesting point. He says, never before in humankind have people been so surrounded by animals, except all of them are unreal. So we're surrounded by stuffed animals, cartoon animals, children's books, characters, and pets. Pets are real. But besides that, the other categories are all unreal. And he said that is just not how the rest of human history has gone. So what does that mean? How do we think about that? He makes a lot of points. I'm going to make one of them later. But one of his basic points, which I find hard to reckon with and very convicting, and should cause us great pause when we ask anything about creation, is this. For most of us, I would venture in this room, our food magically appears, our water magically appears, and our waste magically disappears. That is different than the rest of humanity. That should give us great pause and great humility when we talk about these things. How many of us know today in this room how industrial agriculture works, what factory farming is and entails, the intricacies of where our waste ends up, how it is recycled, and what the future of this is projected to look like? Some of us might know some of that, but I would venture that most of us don't know most of that. And this is just an important reality to reckon with. Because one of our biggest things that we have to deal with as faithful followers of Jesus when we want to love the world like God loves it is just our ignorance. We are ignorant. So what do we do? Well, I'm going to go back to our passage today. We make our ear attentive. We incline our hearts, we cry out for, we seek, we search for what the psalmist, the proverb calls the way of the good, God's wisdom and God's ways. That's our task. That's a series of aggressive verbs. That's not passive and it's not easy. There's another point that Dale Allison makes that should affect us when we think about these things and we acknowledge who we are and our problem in living well in this world. He says, and I think this is fascinating, When people talk about our world becoming more secular, becoming entirely secular in some ways, they talk about philosophers. He said, that's not right. The biggest thing that's made our world secular is our physical separation from the natural world. And here's his quotation. The more we have moved indoors, the less some of us have been inclined to believe. He says, the reason is because we've lost wonder. Humans used to wonder when they looked up at the skies, when they were scared of storms, when they were terrified of the ocean, when they looked up at the stars in the night sky and they looked up at the moon, they thought, someone must have created that. We don't have those same experiences in that same way with that same frequency, so our material environments really limit our imagination and affect our hearts. I find that hard to deny for myself. So our lack of wonder is something we have to acknowledge if we want to live well in this world. I said last week, wonder and awe is one of the most important things we have to cultivate if we're going to live well. How then shall we live? What does this mean? 
I'm going to say a few things. The first thing I want to say is I think we have to confess, as I've been trying to do the last few minutes, our hesitations, our problems, our weaknesses, what holds us back. We're overwhelmed. We are busy, like Joanna said. We have limited time. We can't go out and write a dissertation on every issue that comes before us. That's a reality, and that's, I think, why most people give up. A lot of us aren't wealthy. We look at people telling us to go to Whole Foods and buy organic, and we say, I can't. That's a reality. We don't know who to trust. We live in what's been called the post-truth era. You read something somewhere that convicts you about the coral reefs or the temperature of the globe or the change in weather. And you say, is that reputable? Is that right? Someone else is saying something else. How do I know? They're both scientists. Those are hard problems. We have different backgrounds and different stories and different lives that have led us to the moment we're in. I have a friend who conserves and doesn't waste in this way. When, she, when I go to take off a half paper towel to clean something up, she looks at what she needs to clean up, the spill, and then she measures visually and tears off exactly the right amount. And I come to learn that that is because my friend, her mom grew up during wartime in a time and a place where for a period her family, the only food they had to survive was grass in the front yard. We come to the question of use and temperature and eating from all different places and all different stories, and that's worth reckoning with. I come from a background and from a place where we drive 10 feet to pick up our mail from the mailbox, and we turn on the AC full blast when we do that. Those are my people. That's something I have to reckon with. We have habits that have hardened so that they seem impossible to break or too painful to break. And for reasons we don't quite understand, we get irrationally furious if someone suggests that perhaps we should eat differently or live a little bit differently within our environments. I will confess to you right now, before I began thinking really carefully for the first time in my life and preparing this sermon series, during the winter, Quincy and I, a source of deep marital tension, would be the fact that I felt like she kept it just way too cold in the house, on the thermostat. And her reply, which I now realize was a much more godly reply than mine, was, look at how you're dressed. You have on a t-shirt and shorts in the middle of a 16-degree day. Why don't you just put on a little more clothes and let's keep the thermostat at this reasonable temperature? Habits are hard to break, and we get really mad for really irrational reasons. So the first thing we have to do is confess these sorts of things and understand these sorts of things about ourselves. The next thing, I said, we need to help rename the world. We need to help rename the world. That's the work we've been doing the last three weeks. That's why I started where I started, and I talked about it for a long time. 
Genesis 2 says this. We didn't talk about this passage yet. The Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper as his partner. So out of the ground, the Lord God formed every animal of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all cattle and to the birds of the air and to every animal of the field. But for the man, there was not found a helper as his partner. We need to rename the world like Adam did. Because we live in a world that a lot of what happens and a lot of what occurs and some of our deepest problems is that we have lost the names for things. We don't call the animals by their names. Instead, we call them units of production or natural resources or acceptable losses. The language we use makes all the difference in the world. I think God would have us maybe possibly exercise dominion just like Adam did, helping to rename the world for what things really are. That's why I've been careful throughout this whole sermon series not to refer to nature and not to refer to the environment because God would have me say that this that we live in and everything we see is his creation. That is the important term for us. The third thing that I think we need to do is try to learn more in a particular way. I've made this point, but I want to make it a little bit more deeply which is Jesus uses all of these images, like I've said before. Jesus talks about how the lilies of the field grow, and I confess to you I've never seen a lily field grow from start to finish. I bought cut lilies, that's different. That's not what he's talking about. Jesus says, look at the birds of the air, and the best I can do is the one time that Henry showed me the eagle cam in Iowa, and I watched that a little bit. Jesus makes these deep, profound points that involve understanding the rhythms of the world and being at a deep gut level able to relate to profound truths because you live in God's creation. It's been said, and I agree, I don't know about you, but I am one of those guilty of living above place. I live in the ether. I live in the internet too often. I don't live rooted in the rhythms of God's creation. So we need to educate ourselves by finding some way, not just to read books like I've been doing, but to actually meet and befriend and talk to people that have experienced what it is to live out the rhythms of creation. That's the only way we're ever gonna overcome our problem of limited time. Again, you're not gonna write a dissertation on all of these issues, but what you could do is make new friends or talk to friends or learn from other people. Testimony has always been the primary way that people know anything, not just in Christian knowledge, which is true, but in the world. I've never looked through a telescope and seen Mars. I trust that it's there because I was told that it was. Testimony is important and the value of our testimony is gonna be really important if we're gonna live better in this world. The fourth thing is, and I made this point a little bit last year, we have to learn to live within our limits. We don't like limits. We've always tried to surpass limits. To accumulate, to build bigger barns, to eat the tree we're not supposed to eat, we just don't do well with limits. 
from the tree in the Garden of Eden to the command to rest on the Sabbath, to command not to eat blood, to the Deuteronomy laws about how to do things with or not do things with and for animals. God wants us to learn to live within limits in how we interact with this creation. Fifth point is this. Let's see if I can dust off my Hebrew. Tsa'ar ba'alei chayim. I think that's right. It's a Hebrew term that means suffering of living creatures. I learned this and found this fascinating. Ancient Jews and rabbis who read some of the same texts we've been reading, one of the ways that they tried to apply loving the creation like God loves creation is they created this principle of do more, no more harm than is necessary. So they developed specific butchering techniques to avoid giving any unnecessary pain to animals. The sixth thing we have to do is something I hope we'll talk a lot more about this Lenten season more broadly, not just with creation, which is how do we change habits? That's the hardest thing in the world is changing habits. But we have to change our habits. We can't just hope for better technology. I found this incredibly convicting. There's a man named Bartholomew I. He is what's called the ecumenical patriarch. That is like the pope for the Eastern Orthodox Church. He says that his vision, which he thinks is the Bible's vision, which he thinks is God's vision, is that we replace consumption with sacrifice, greed with generosity, wastefulness with a spirit of sharing. That we move gradually away from what I want to what God's world needs. Could have saved us a lot of time over this sermon series. I should have just read that four weeks ago and stopped. Hopefully we will talk more this Lenten season about changing our habits. The last thing I want to say, and then we'll end, is it's the smallest seed that yields the largest tree. In Mark 4, 30 through 32, Jesus says this, with what can we compare the kingdom of God or what parable will we use for it? It is like a mustard seed, which when sown upon the ground is the smallest of all seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes the greatest of all shrubs and puts forth large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. Okay, I don't understand it fully, right? Because I, 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 I've never seen a mustard shrub. But still, I kind of get the point. I kind of get the point. And this is the thing I really, really, really want to say today. Because what I'm about to tell you changed my life. It applied in a different context, but it applies to us here. Because one of the things you'll hear people say is not just they don't know what problems we're creating in our world, the ways that we're destroying God's creation. They don't know. They don't have enough time to research it. You hear that? Yes, right? It's too expensive to do that? Yes, right? Those are all true. But here's probably the number one objection. What difference does it make? I'm just one person. I turn the lights off when I leave a room. So what? That's not going to change anything. You hear that all the time. Well, here's what changed my life. When I was in law school, 
I remember reading the Sermon on the Mount and wrestling with its precepts and wrestling with this an analogous thing. Okay, if I am going to love my enemies instead of kill them, what difference does that make? Because everyone else is just going to kill their enemies. And, I, and the justification for killing enemies was that we need to do it or else all of these terrible things will happen. You see, there's this societal level, top level, king level, top down view that says I need to act based on what seems to me most effective if I am governing the world and deciding how things turn out. Wars seem more effective than not fighting wars. And what I learned and what freed me and liberated me to this day is that is God's responsibility, not mine. My responsibility is to live faithfully. My responsibility is to trust that the tiny mustard seed of my life might become part of the largest tree. Whether it's living faithfully in regard to my enemies or living faithfully in loving this world, whatever my little tiny actions are, I have to trust matters. Christians have always, always struggled with the problem of, but it's not gonna work out because the odds are too overwhelming. We're just a group of 12 and everyone thinks we're crazy because the man we were following was crucified. Shouldn't we just give up? 12 people can't change the entire Roman Empire. And then it was 500. And they saw, thought the same thing. And throughout, I'm convinced throughout, I don't have any evidence for this, but I bet you that this mustard seed image has been more important to Christians throughout the ages than just about anything else. I think that might be all I'm gonna say about creation. But I hope that we continue to do what I've tried to set out today, which is just wherever each individual person is at, I want us to think of it as God loves creation. God wants to redeem creation. God's love is bigger than we realize. How can we participate in who God is better? How can we be more like him? How can we govern more like him? And that's gonna look different for different people. But that's the task that the proverb sets before us. We have to search that out as in every other area of life. Amen.